Hi, I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Russell Wilson, Marcus Mariota, and Serena Williams. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And training is more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of training. Movement, recovery, sleep, nutrition, and mindset. Today, we focus on the power of self-talk. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. I've had more days where I don't feel good than I do feel good. Even if it's a bad day and you know it's going to be a bad day, but just it's showing up when you don't want to is the key, I think, to my success. That's Shalane Flanagan, winner of the 2017 New York City Marathon and author of Run Fast, Eat Slow. Shalane is a rebellious experimenter. She runs, eats, and lives in her own unique way. We'll be diving deep into her unorthodox journey to the top of the running world. This is the first episode of Trained, and before we dive in, I want to tell you a little bit about the show and why we're doing this. Since Nike's earliest days, we've been in the business of serving athletes. When our founders, Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight, shook hands, it was a commitment to doing all that we can to help athletes reach their peak performance. It started with shoes, but it's about so much more than shoes. Just like Bill Bowerman looked for every opportunity to make athletes better, we're here to do the same for trainers. We know that trainers are out there every day, helping their clients push the limits of their potential. We also know that to be their best, trainers have to wade through a ton of information and research. It can be overwhelming. Through Nike's relationships with some of the top experts in the world, as well as some of the top coaches of our athletes, we want to bring to light what we want our trainers to know and what we feel like is important. Every episode, I'll talk to the world's top coaches, athletes, and experts about their work and their approach. You're gonna learn a ton from these people. How did they get to where they are? And where do they find their information? And what makes what they do different from what you know everybody else is doing? But the other thing that you'll hear is that they're constantly learning themselves. That's what being a good trainer is all about. To continue to improve, you need an open mind. You need to be able to adapt. It's a journey. My guest today is Shalane Flanagan. She's a silver medalist, four-time Olympian, and the first female American winner of the New York City Marathon in 40 years. She's a longtime Nike athlete and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Run Fast, Eat Slow, a book of nourishing recipes for athletes. We got into how she uses positive self-talk, how her relationship with her coach is one of the most important in her life, and how she surrounded herself with some of the top female runners in the world. Hey, Shalane, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. So... That moment you crossed the finish line, can you just talk to that feeling you had and what it felt like? In those final, you know, 100 meters or so, uh, seeing the actual finish line tape is where it really hit home for me. Um, you know, I pulled away with 5K to go um, from some of the top marathoners in the world. And I never looked back because I just wanted to show and exude the strength um, that I wasn't afraid and that I was going to accomplish this goal. And I didn't want to show any signs of weakness. You know, when I saw that finish line tape, it was just overwhelming joy. And I think I expressed that um, with um, some things that I said as I was approaching the finish line. I just couldn't believe that this moment was coming to fruition and that no one could take it away from me. It was mine. I'm going to own it now and forever. And uh, it just made all that hard work worth it. And, you know, the validation of this dream was finally coming true. 
That's amazing. At any point in that race, did you feel like, did you let yourself kind of start thinking about that you may be in a position that you could win it? Or did you just not think about it until you were saw the finish line? Um, throughout the whole training process, I think in order to motivate yourself to run 130 miles a week, like I did, I had to visualize winning. Then when it comes to race day and I'm standing on that start line to think about winning at the start line, I think is a dangerous place to go for me personally, um, because it can be overwhelming looking ahead at the Verrazano bridge and thinking, you know, oh my gosh, what am I, what did I get myself (laughs) into? This is a daunting task to try to win the New York city marathon. And, um, break down this, you know, huge moment of 40 years of no American woman um, winning the New York City Marathon. But so I didn't really allow myself to dream about it in the race. I just said, you know, put myself in position to capitalize on the moment. If the moment is there, you got to strike. But I feel like not until I saw that finish line tape would I really allow (laughs) myself to get excited. Yeah. I read a quote about you where you said 24 hours before the race, you just felt this like just overall calm. Like, where did that come from? Do you think is it was it kind of the culmination of all your training that you felt like everything had just lined up for this moment or or somewhere else? For some reason, in the three months leading up to New York, I just felt like things clicked like they had never clicked before. And I just could feel like something special was happening. And here I am. I just come off of a major injury a few months prior and, you know, thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe, you know, I'm not meant to do this anymore. Maybe my body can't handle the rigors of marathon training. And, you know, I've had a good run of it. I have an Olympic medal. I've set a lot of records. But I could just feel like all that experience and those highs and lows were kind of culminating. And I could just sense, I don't know what it was. It's just that that it factor in that moment. And I felt like things were flowing out of me. And I knew that regardless of how the outcome of the race uh, was going to go, I just felt like I was going to have my best day. I think athletes are very in tune with their bodies and they know and they can sense when something special is going to happen. I could just feel when I got to New York, magic was in the air and I could just sense that about the race. You just mentioned it, but I would love to talk about that a little bit. Um, but your injury, the back injury that you had leading up to that, I think for most, for a lot of people that could have been the breaking point. And like you said, it, it crossed your mind as, as maybe is this the sign that it's not meant to be like, can you talk through your process of, of how you, you know, obviously you first were injured. Like, how did you kind of overcome that injury though? Like that adversity I think is really potentially what set you up for success in the race. Yeah, you know, I was like, well, questioning, like, well, is my body like just telling, giving me signs like that this isn't meant to be anymore? And um, so I mourn the loss of this goal in the stream of um, trying to win the Boston Marathon and let that sadness overcome me for a few weeks and then kind of just had to regroup and just started to set other goals. And so I had other things in my life at the time that allowed me to kind of move on. And that was I was a foster parent that year to two amazing girls, um, high school girls. And I was also uh, working on my second cookbook, Run Fast, Cook Fast, Eat Slow. And I think in a way that break really rejuvenated my mind and my body. And I never would have taken that moment. And in a way, I think it's really what allowed me to do so well in New York because I had so many years of training and there's probably an element of overtraining that I just never realized. I was in such a state of fatigue and until I was forced to take a break and reevaluate, I didn't realize how tired I was until I got going again. And um, I just surrounded myself with positive people and started to piece together a plan for a comeback. I think overtraining is one of those things where I think 
m- most athletes don't recognize that they're doing it until they get they get injured, they slow down, they get they, you know they get the flu, and all of a sudden they feel this overall sense of exhaustion that I don't think they recognize was there because you just have to kind of push through. But I want to I want to touch on something you said earlier, which so you're a foster parent. I mean, I don't think that's something a lot of people know about you. Yeah, well, I I didn't actually um, do it for very long. There are two identical uh, twin girls that live here in Portland, and um, they needed help getting through their senior year of high school. And so, right, um, they moved in with my husband and I right before uh, the Rio Olympics, and then stayed with us for about a year. And then we helped move them into a situation where they're going to a local community college here. Um, but I think um, a lot of elite athletes can relate to. Um, at some point in your career, if you have a, if you're fortunate to have a long career, um, you start to just need more in your life. Like in early in my career, I could easily go through what I call Groundhog Day and kind of like throw myself up in the mountains, not really see anyone, talk to anyone, and be completely content and fine to just grind it out day in and day out. But I think as time passes, I think I started to just feel like I needed to contribute more to myself and to society in other ways other than just running. Because if a race goes poorly and you've given everything that you have of yourself, there's like a deep heartache that happens when you don't perform to what you think you're capable of or you don't win. As my career has progressed, I've just needed to add in um, components that make me feel whole and make me feel like I'm contributing in other ways. If a race doesn't go well and I don't win the Boston Marathon, then at least I have something that I can feel good about. Yeah. Um, and so that's how, you know, becoming a foster parent was like really an integral part of that year for me. Yeah. I think when you when you look at why a lot of people give back, it's it's almost to keep things in perspective, right? You kind of keeps that balance, I think, in a healthy way, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to touch on one thing, which was your, your cookbook. When did that kind of inspiration come for you to write the book? And kind of, I would love you to talk to how nutrition plays a huge role in, in your training and, and your performance. Yeah, so um, the idea for Run Fast, Eat Slow started with one of my best friends. We went to college and ran at, at Carolina, and we're both on the track team. And she went to culinary school in New York City and came back. And over a home-cooked meal, we were discussing just our goals for life and how she wanted um, you know, to take her culinary school skills and help people. And I said, you know, well, I have this dream of making a fourth Olympic team, but I feel like my diet is just so bland and boring and I'm hungry all the time and I just don't feel satiated. And she was just saying the only numbers you should be worrying about are the, like the splits on your watch, how many miles a week you're running and not the ones in the kitchen. So trying to find that healthy balance and not obsessing and enjoying my food by incorporating more healthy fats and, um, you know, grass-fed beef and just a variety of foods that she started implementing. And she actually was teaching me how to cook, like to own what I was putting in my body and taking time to make my own food in the kitchen and feeding my family. And um, it's now become a passion of mine to cook. And I didn't know how to cook. So it's been one of the greatest gifts that she's given me is to actually learn how to get in my kitchen and cook for myself. But as a result of... um, our little project, we thought we've got to share this knowledge. Like we just can't keep this to ourselves. So we thought, okay, well, we'll we'll write a cookbook. Um, We didn't know what we were doing, um, but we had the passion and the drive. Having some of the greatest moments of my career, which in an age of which I would be considered towards the later stages, you know, I'm 36. That's I'm maybe one of the oldest American distance runners that's still, you know, making teams and setting records and winning major marathons. So um, 
it's obviously not all in the food, but it's a huge part that I believe that I'm still around and still healthy and, and doing what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a lost art almost. You look at a lot of the younger athletes I've I've worked with so few of them know how to cook. I mean, you put them yeah. in the kitchen, they don't know where to start. And when you see what's going into the foods you're making, it almost like gives you this realization, oh my gosh, there's that much sugar in this, you know? Yeah. And like, instead yeah. of just eating a muffin, you kind of can yeah. see like what is going into that. The ownership. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is really, really cool. In 09, you joined the Bowerman Track Club here in, in Portland. And at the time, we're the only woman on the team. Yeah. So, so in 2009, um, my current coach, Jerry Schumacher, uh, moved out here with a whole bunch of men from Wisconsin. He was the University of Wisconsin coach. And so I decided, well, I felt like he was the the guy to, to help me achieve my goals of becoming this great distance runner. And um, so I moved from North Carolina um, out to Oregon. And it was a group of men that had been working with Jerry since they were teenagers. And then there was me who just showed up and said, <laughs> please coach me. Um and, you know, I think he at first he was intimidated because um, I already had an Olympic medal and he'd never coached women. So yeah. I put a little pressure on him to uh, <laughs> deliver and um, to help me achieve my goals. And, you know, there's been ups and downs throughout our, our time together. But in general, um, it's been a great relationship. Uh, we've learned a lot and experimented with just a variety of styles of training. And I think we finally have, you know, figured out what works for me and also what works for uh, the group as a whole. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about, you know, your relationship with your coach, what are, what are some of those ups and downs that you guys have had over the years? You know, I came from a very minimalist mileage background, and so he had to learn how to push me to get more miles in um, without breaking me completely because his men were who had been with him longer were used to a higher volume of workload, and I was not. So, you know, we had moments where I would probably overtrain trying to keep up to the demands of what he thought I should be at, and I just wasn't quite there yet. But I think he's learned, Jerry's learned that, you know, he really has to really ask specific questions and make sure that uh, everything's okay because we tend to sugarcoat it and try to be tough it out. And so if, you know, I, I joke with him, but I'm like, if Emily tells you her toe hurts, it's probably broken. It's probably <laughs> not just like an ouch, I think my toe hurts. It's like it's something's probably really wrong. So I think that learning curve of communication and now I'm a lot more honest, maybe too honest with him now. Um, but it, that's that was an integral part of just the ups and downs and that communication. Do you have any advice for, for coaches or trainers that are listening and how they can better communicate or, or um, improve the relationship they have with their clients or athletes? I think the, the number one thing that I've noticed with myself and how other athletes respond is if athletes know that their coach cares, it's like the number one thing, just showing that you care and so when I know when Jerry's making decisions um, and sometimes we disagree, uh, at the end of the day, I always say, you know, and ask myself and remind myself is that he's doing exactly what he thinks is best for me. And so I think he's just made a great effort in showing that he cares. And that goes such a long way with athletes. And I think a lot of his athletes would run through brick walls for him because they know that he cares. A hundred percent. Yeah. So you started out as the only female on, on the team with your coach. And then you, you wanted to incorporate where, you know, more female athletes started to join the club. Can you talk about that process as, as it started and then how it's kind of evolved to where it is today? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so being the only female athlete and I'm a competitive person and to hold myself to high standards, I would always ask him to compare my workout to theirs. And so I'd always compete with the men in a way. Um, but then there became a point where I felt like in order to enjoy my career and to have a long career, I needed to surround myself with other women. And I needed to have that social interaction in order to push myself to another level and to just enjoy the process of what I was doing. And so I really pushed my coach, Jerry, to add more women. And, you know, we were very selective in who we chose um, because I told him, you know, excellence breeds excellence. And I want to be surrounded with the best that we have in this country. And he agreed. And we felt like that that highly competitive environment could be cultivated with the right leadership. I'm so thankful that he said yes, because now we have um, an incredible group of women, um, a lot of them with medals, uh, records, and probably one of the best female training groups in the world because of it. <laughs> and how has that affected your training? <laughs> I want to not be inspired by by an athlete that I read about. I want to like literally look to my right and to my left and be like, wow, this is a group of like badass women, and I'm inspired by them on a daily basis. And if I don't get the results that I want in my race, I've at least invested myself in other women. And through them, I get this great high and sense of accomplishment when they do well. And their great performances inspire me to ask more of myself and to have higher standards. That I think whether you're a runner or a business person, that to surround yourself with, with really successful people who you can kind of you know, glean ideas from or, or share or, you know, sharing people's success, I think is, is a really powerful message. I wanted to pivot just a little bit and just dive into. So in a lot of sports today, you hear about process a lot more than I think we used to, but there's two kind of ways of thinking about it. You can either think kind of more results-based, results-oriented or process-based and process-oriented. Which are you and what do you attribute your success to? I guess a little bit of both. It's like if you have a goal of winning an Olympic medal, you have to work back from, you know, a specific date and think about, well, what am I going to do on a daily basis? How do I each day get the best version of myself on that day and kind of stringing that together and the consistency? I find in distance running consistency is absolutely key. Showing up and even if it's a bad day and you know it's going to be a bad day, but just like showing up regardless of how you're feeling is, I think, the key to the big successful half the battle. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's showing up when you don't want to is is the the key I think um, to my success is I've had more days where I don't feel good than I do feel good and I still just show up and put mm-hmm. in the work and the end result hopefully it's in line with the vision and the goal that you had for yourself and um, and so that's what keeps us coming back from wars because we want to see that execution and that body of work. It's like a piece of artwork leading to the final product. And hopefully it's it's a beautiful piece of artwork at the end. Yeah. When you look at um, elite athletes, you know, talent kind of is their their ticket into the game. But what separates the, the cream from the crop is, is their mind, the mindset, um, the psychology, the, how they deal with adversity, how they how they push through. Yeah. What's the psychology focus you have on, of your sport that you use through your training? You know, it's easy to fall into the trap of negative thoughts and negative self-talk, like I'm not good enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not working hard enough. And um, so I think for me, choosing my thoughts and trying to be as optimistic as possible, and it doesn't mean I live in la-la land. Um, I'm like, I'm a realist and I'm realistic about what I can do, but I focus on 
what I can do within my life. Like it doesn't always, it doesn't come natural. It's a choice to say like, okay, I always tell myself when I'm in a moment and I'm like not feeling good and it hurts really bad. And um, the easy option is to just like back off and not lean into the pain of the workout. But I tell myself constantly that, you know, Shalane, this is the moment why you're going to work so hard is so that when you get into the race and it hurts, it's like you can't help but make the right decision because you train so hard that it becomes intuitive and it just flows out of you. And that alleviates a lot of stress for me if I know that I've done that work in training. At the end of the New York City Marathon, what, what was the self-talk you were having in your head? Oh, there was a lot. In the last three miles, it was like, you know, don't mess this up to don't trip on the curb. You know, just like the silliest things, like a dog ran out in front of me, like in Central Park. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there goes the race. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, just little like moments like that to then like you're strong and you're powerful and you're doing this. And then like don't show any weakness to trying to like soak it up, but then also not like allow it to kind of seep in and sink Mm -hmm. in because I knew I'd get emotional if I was like, I'm really doing this. Like, like I said, once I hit um, the last like 600 meters and seeing that, you know, the finish line area, that's when I allowed the emotion to set in. And there were a few curse words, even verbally um, expressed just because, yeah, I, I felt just, I think the best word to describe is just validation. I had this dream And at times it seemed totally crazy to other people and maybe even to myself at times, like, God, is it really ever going to (laughs) happen? And just the magnitude of it kind of like sinking in and um, just was like super proud of myself. What's next for you? Like, what's the next goal for you? And how much longer do you you think you're going to run competitively? I don't know what's next. I have to figure out what's like the big motivating factor for me to get out there and train hard. Um, And so I'm kind of, you know, feeling that out. I think this summer I'm going to get fit so that I can help my teammates um, attain some of their personal bests on the track, their PRs. And um, there's actually a lack of really great rabbits, um, which is someone who paces um, all the athletes. And so I think I'll get fit enough to maybe dream of what the next race is as a result and invest myself in them and their their summer racing and and then see if if there's something that you know really gets me excited about my own personal goals yeah it seems natural to me but do you think coaching's in your future absolutely it's in my future yeah it seems like you'd be amazing at that how would you describe your off the track training philosophies um i believe for sure in getting in the weight room and doing resistance training, especially as a female athlete, in order to stay injury-free and just feel strong, I truly believe getting in the weight room is essential. And it doesn't mean I'm throwing around a lot of weight, but I do believe that I need to be lean and mean and I need to be strong. And in order to carry my body 26 miles or even just two laps around the track, I gotta. I have to. I always make this analogy, like I'm striving to be as strong as a high school boy. Like high school boys and I run about the same time. So when I get in the weight room, that's what I'm thinking about is, you know, be as strong as I possibly can. Jelaine, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really, really, you know, great. I mean, it's just amazing to talk to you and I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you. At the end of each interview, I'll be giving you guys a takeaway or one piece of advice that I've learned that trainers or athletes can apply to their own work. In this episode's takeaway, positive self-talk. With every athlete I work with, all of them share that common trait of, of positive self-talk. Um, 
they, they do a really good job when faced with an adversity to positively talk themselves through it. They don't get negative. They don't allow negative thoughts to kind of fill their head. They just, they have these affirmations that they repeat to themselves that allow them to push through. And I think she, this isn't just her that talks about this. Every time I talk to a, a top athlete, this is something that is brought up and they treat themselves really well when, when faced with, you know, tough adversity. And I think that's something we can all learn from um, and use in our day-to-day life. And that's it for our first episode. Trained is produced by Nike Training Club Pro, the best of Nike exclusively for trainers. To apply, go to nike.com slash ntcpro. Our next episode is with Andy Puttacombe, the co-founder and voice of Headspace, the wildly successful meditation app. See you then. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind, especially if you have a medical condition. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.